Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of 26.1 AI Podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Talili Emamir, who started her career in electrical engineering and computer engineering and made a big change. And uh, you've got just about every big name in tech in your resume, Talili. Welcome, Talili. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Thanks for being on our podcast. And it sounds like you've gone from all sorts of types of engineering to things that come very close and very much in line with what people are interested in AI today. Um, so kind of at a high level, what led you to the progression of being what you do now? Well, we should highlight the uh, the tech companies or orgs names because they're, it's an all-star list. NASA, Dolby, Bell Labs, Nokia, and Intel wow. before just Devotech. Yeah. Yeah. I had a lot of, uh, a lot of internships during my undergrad and grad school. Um, and so I, I started mostly in software. Um, so that was the, the sort of NASA and Dolby and Bell Labs um, area were mostly software internships. Um, and then I was really interested in robotics and embedded systems, which eventually led me down into the microchip world. Um, that's, that's how I ended up at Intel. Um, and then I, then I wanted kind of like a much bigger step change. And I got really interested in, in biology because I, Sort of note, I, I was contacted by a professor in synthetic biology, and I'd never heard of the field of synthetic biology, but essentially it's like programming circuits into cells, right? And I thought, oh, that's really interesting um, and new and, and something I'm not familiar with at all. Um, and, and it sounds like an interesting set of problems that don't have answers yet. And so I was really interested in, in kind of exploring that space. Well, what does that mean to program cells? I mean, is that, mm -hmm. are you working with proteins, antibodies? What are you working with there? Usually uh, cells like um, E. coli or yeast cells um, and any mammalian cells in some cases, but typically what they do is you sort of edit their genome or you edit their DNA um, to take in one input uh, or given some sort of stimuli, um, change how they respond to that stimuli. And so like, you know, the very obvious thing is like, uh, if I, if I injected some sort of, uh, chemical into a plate full of E. coli that I programmed to glow in response to that chemical, then that, then they should glow. Right. And that's because I inserted some, um, glowing gene in, in the genome that didn't exist before. But there's obviously like much more interesting use cases. And um, I, I was like, I had no background in biology when I joined this lab. And so a lot of it was a, you know, sort of a big learning curve. But what I ended up gravitating towards was trying to automate a lot of the process because 
because I had so little background and I felt like I didn't really know what I was doing in the wet lab. I wanted to help with the wet lab process. Like one of the big things and one of the big issues in biology is reproducibility, right? You have these papers that are published, um, these intricate method sections with protocols, these wet lab protocols that for me, like I couldn't really understand. And uh, so one of the big projects in our lab was to sort of standardize that and essentially turn them into programs, software programs. Um, And the idea is that if you could write your method section or your protocol as a program and you put it through this like standard interpreter software tool that you would be able to, anyone with that like software tool or interpreter would be able to see the protocol like in the same way that you had seen it, right? And so that's kind of where I mostly focused on. Um, But then eventually I ended up going further and saying like, okay, I, I just want to build an AI that builds the circuit for me, essentially. Um, and I just want to give it like a list of parts. Like you, you can have like these biological parts of promoters or genes, repressors or whatever. And if I gave this AI a library and I told it the basic rules of like how you compare a promoter with a gene, for example, and then I said, okay, go for it. Build me, uh, build me like a set of uh, cells that would oscillate um, in response to some chemical signal. Then the AI would essentially try to, first of all, try to learn what each of the parts would do by like trial and error, and then eventually reach that goal. Um, so that was my one of my bigger projects towards the end of my um, time in that lab. But then eventually I got into proteins because uh, I I did this work at the UW and my lab is adjacent to the Baker lab, which is this really well-known de novo protein design lab. And they were coming up with ways to interrogate very large libraries of proteins. And to me, that was like, oh, that data set is really, really interesting and definitely large enough to start doing some some machine learning. Um, so then I got into got into uh, doing machine learning to sort of predict the stability of a protein given its sequence or some structure properties. And that's a lot closer to what I'm doing now at Just Eva Tech Biologics. So... So I mean, you had to have some, you know, labeled data or something of what is a what is in, unstable or what is stable, correct? I mean, there must have been some examples that you, the machine had to learn on. Yeah, definitely. That was that project was definitely a supervised learning project. Um, what it was was they had some signal, um, and they had what's called a protease, which goes through and chews the protein up. And the idea was that if it was a more stable protein it wouldn't get chewed up so much and your signal would be brighter. Um, But if it was unstable, it would be completely chewed up and you'd have this really weak signal. So that was sort of the, the, the measure for stability for, for that case. Um, 
infant so that's for the, that's that's an assay that came out of the baker lab which and for those uh listeners that we have that are not a biology or, or that as technical what's the net impact of that work what does it mean to the world what problems can you solve well if if you can imagine so <clears throat> um proteins are used in a lot of um medical treatments i guess and in a lot of drugs so i'll just take the antibody example on the stuff that we're working on at just Tech. you know we use antibodies to treat a number of things you could treat covid for example a lot of people have probably heard about uh, antibody therapeutics for covid um, and mm-hmm. you can imagine if it's a very unstable antibody or protein, um, that that would completely fall apart, get chewed up, not make it through the process, for example, and not even, um, be able to be injected in your body because it just didn't even make it as a drug, like in the vial, you know, if it was heated up too much or something, it just completely falls apart. So you really want to have... Um, a stable protein structure. So being able to predict that is is kind of um, one of the like holy grails in a way. Um, but it's not just stability. There's we want to be able to predict how it behaves. Like I said, as a drug in the vial, um, we also want to be able to predict how it behaves in your body. You know, like how how likely is this antibody or this protein? going to be to trigger like an immune response. You know, we don't want that. Uh, How quickly is it going to be cleared from your system? If it gets cleared too quickly, um, you know, that we have to increase the dose. Um, You have to get it more frequently. And that's a cost issue and accessibility issue. Okay, so let me get this straight. So you run the machine learning on these, and then they still probably have to go through some sort of a clinical trial, I presume, yeah. kind of the old-fashioned way. Is there any measure of how much better the ones that go through a machine learning model perform versus the ones that are done more of trial and error or the old way? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a good question. Um, I think that it's so early right now that machine learning is being applied to the protein space that I don't know of too many that have gone through antibodies that have gone through clinical trial yet. So till, yeah, I think actually I think validation of these sorts of techniques is kind of a big, uh, a big thing and sort of an open problem. We have to, we still have to be able to validate that these methods are um, better than existing approaches. But I, I think that's a lot easier to do with things like biophysical stresses and platform behavior than like clinical trials because it takes years to get clinical trial data. Um, and we really are just sort of like scratching the surface of, of deep learning and uh, in application to proteins and antibodies like within the last, oh, I don't know, three, three or four years or so, three years maybe. So I think we're just starting to get there with regards to clinical data. Janet Matson introduced us, and I know a little bit about her work at Zymergen with using yeast to try to predict um, different combinations that would produce a useful molecule. 
Yeah. And an example she gave in terms of improvements over wet lab is the amount of time that they can um, do in in a in machine learning what would take the the lifespan of the universe to date to uh, replicate in wet lab. Do, do you have those kind of advantages for doing this with proteins? Um, I think so in some ways, yes. The, so like the search bits, for example, for antibody designs. So I'll just give you an example. Like <clears throat> there, there are clients that will come to us with an antibody that they already have that binds some target of interest. Um, but that antibody might not necessarily behave well in the platform. And so it doesn't necessarily make us a, a good drug candidate. Um, and then you can think about like all the different ways that you could possibly modify the sequence of that antibody to, to, to modify its behavior. And the number of mutations that you can make is more than, you know, say atoms in the universe. And so yeah, we can use machine learning and we do use machine learning to guide that sort of how do we, where in the sequence space do we make the mutations and how do we, how do we, and what amino acids do we mutate it to? What are, what are sort of the recommendations for that, that, that narrows down that space? And maybe that's one sort of example. So if you were to fast forward five years from now, given that just three years ago, you started using machine learning in the space. Is it, you know, is this really going to change the world, this technology? I mean, I, I think so. Yeah. I think there are a lot of drugs that still have a lot of issues. I mean, we can always make, and we can always make them cheaper. Like antibody therapeutics, for example, are incredibly expensive and inaccessible to a lot of the globe. Um, because they can't afford them, and and they can always be made less immunogenic. They could always be made um, faster and cheaper, and that's like that's one of the goals of Just Eva Tech is to make these drugs accessible to the population. And I think the only way to do it is to to do it with deep learning, machine learning, and AI, um, because. The space is so complicated. I mean, in that example where I was saying you could make, you know, where in the sequence do you make mutation and how do you how do you make it? It's a very complex space. And to know what mutations will affect its stability, its its function, its activity, um, and how it works as a drug, we don't know the answer to that yet. I think no one knows the answer to that yet. But I think once we start to have the data sets that we can actually make really significant improvements in this space. Um, yeah, I think this would be game changer. I, I'm familiar with Repatha or Paluent, which are for um, lowering cholesterol and are referred to as biologics. Mm -hmm. Are these examples of therapies that you're working on with just Evotech biologics? Um, are they are they antibody therapeutics? I mean, if they're biologics, then yes, that, that is in the space. 
Um, we there's different forms of biologics, uh, and there's some there's even some really interesting uh, sort of mutant antibodies that are even harder to make, um, and that's like an even like so they'll have multiple be able to bind multiple targets, for example, instead of just one, which would be pretty pretty good for making sure that it's binding spe specifically what it needs to bind and not or, uh, not having off-target effects, for example. Um, so that's like an, yet another like uh, order of magnitude, I feel like, of complexity. And so I think even just tackling, just tackling like how predicting how small proteins um, behave in the body and then moving on to larger proteins like antibodies and then moving on to really franken antibodies and franken proteins these huge mono, huge uh proteins that have such complex function i think i think we really have our work cut out for us over for the next couple of years um but yeah i, I think that's sort of in the space that, that we're working on and it seems like a lot of this is driven by not your non-traditional machine learning, your deep learning, your neural nets. And we all know those can be hard to explain, you know, under the hood. Yeah. But is there a risk here? Is there a risk that you're going to introduce something? Um, or is there any fears that you have that something may go wrong? Someone doesn't do their due diligence and they introduce something? Well... So a few things. Um, I think there's still a lot that we can get out of with sort of like the lower powered models and the more statistically based approaches like PCA or whatnot, um, and even simple regression models. Um, I think there's a lot that we can do there. And there's a lot that we have to do with those tools because there's much more limited data in the antibody space. Um, and then to your other question, yes, we do also use the deep learning models, which are harder, much harder to interpret what's actually going on. But I think that's kind of where validation is very, very important. And, um, you know, luckily for us, there's a lot of validation in this field. You can't really get a drug out, um, unless it's jumped through a number of like hoops to make sure that it's a good drug. And so I'm not worried about um, introducing something. I'm less, I'm less worried about introducing something nefarious and not knowing about it. I'm, I'm more worried about, or I'm more, I'm more, I would caution more um, about overfitting your models because it's harder to understand. It's harder to make assumptions about about what the model is doing in this space, I think we really do have to focus on collecting the right amount of data and the right type of data for machine learning to apply the machine learning models. I would caution against using these very deep um, you know, approaches on data that's, that's uh, not meant for those models, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's not enough data and not yeah. diversity yeah right and quality wow. well to highlight what the benefits are the drugs i mentioned i believe they were probably produced just using traditional pharma methods and wet labs 
but the effectiveness is drastic. And in the spirit of a friend of mine who had a heart attack and shared very openly for the sake of um, sparing others, his, his unfortunate um, health event, I have extremely high cholesterol where even if I'm undernourished and starving and not eating anything, I'll be up to 300. And what these biologics, I'm down to like 77 total cholesterol. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, these biologics have been uh, incredibly effective. Um, the ones that have come out have shown to be very, very effective, very useful. Um, and I think, I just think that they can be made better and um, made much more cost effective and and faster. It takes a long time to make these drugs. And you saw this year with the coronavirus, sometimes we don't have a lot of time to do that. Um, so to be able to have a biologics discovery process that's very rapid, very quick, you know that every drug in that library is going to sail through your platform um, would, be, would be a really useful thing to have. And then to make it um, cheap enough that it's accessible to the to to people all over the globe is, is another thing. Um, so yeah, these are very useful drugs, and our and our goal is to make them available to people quickly and um, cost effectively. So, what drives your passion in? I mean, these research projects, if you will, it may take some time to give you rewards back. I mean, you have to do a lot of work, it sounds like, in research to get it to a point where it's probably, you said, oh, yeah, aha, I've made a, I've made a change. Yeah. What, what do you, what drives you? What, what, what do you wake up in the morning driving you to solve these hard problems? Um, I mean, I think it's a good question. And it's funny because, because I come from a background in software and, and hardware, it was a big change to sort of say, Oh, you know, like normally I, I can just compile the thing and then it's running, you know, and if I get a bug, it's, it's right there. Like it's super fast turnaround. Whereas, um, in biology, getting the data that you need takes a lot of time. Um, and so it's a, it's a very different world, but I think it's, it's still very, motivating for me to be able to work on something that has impact, global impact um, and global health impact. And there are so many problems in this space that even when you're working on, you know, you've, you're, you've sort of like sent the set of experiments that you need and now you're waiting, you're working on another problem, you know, and then so you've sent that off, then there's another problem to work on before that data comes back. There's so much to do in this space. And aside from even, you know, like designing the antibodies themselves or the proteins themselves, there's, there are problems in um, sort of the, the bioreactor space, for example, the process itself. It's like, how can I optimize, how can I optimize that workflow? Like, how do I, how do I, uh, how do I nail down a process that's like the smoothest, easiest process? Or can I, can I detect 
um, errors in the in the platform before they happen. Like that's another area. You know, can I make visualizations that are informative for the scientists? And there's a number of different um, problems to keep you busy while you're waiting for other data to come through, I guess. And so that's motivating to me. What's your culture mix like on your team? Are, are there many people like yourself who've come from more of the engineering and computational background, or is it more biologists? Um, I think for our team, most of the folks are probably have more of a um, biology background or a chemical engineering background. Um, and then, uh, and, and maybe even also some statistical background. Um, and then there, there, but there are a number of also software developers on our team that have that, um, software background as well. It's a good mix. And then there's also a number of just like pure, really good, you know, scientists that just really know the biology. Um, so. Are you using the cloud technology now to do any of this or is, how, how do you actually run your models? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm using, I use AWS, you know, <laughs> that's how I run my models. Um, but we have our own, we have our own system for sort of a database for collecting data as it go, as molecules go through the platform. We're sort of taking snapshots of them and keeping track of them in our own database. And so that's kind of where we can get the data, um, but for machine learning, I do a lot of it yeah, on, on the cloud, AWS. I think AWS is literally your neighbor. I yeah. mean, they're not that far away. <laughs> they uh, are literally my <laughs> I haven't heard of them yet, but I'll look them up. Uh, I'm just joking. <laughs> but, yeah. But um, is, it, is it one of those, it's one of those areas I've helped out a lot with, with getting you know, science and biochem teams, different people up to speed on it. Is it something that is a, in your opinion, a fine, finely engineered machine to help you try these models? Or is it something that feels a bit more like Jupyter notebooks hanging out, Python code everywhere? Um, uh, maybe not your particular team, but just in general, is the field, do you feel like it's mature as much as the engineering? I mean, you worked at some of the most, prestigious blue chips there's ever been. And I'm sure they're extremely organized. Is it that way in your, your field now? Um, I, I think it's getting there. I, I, so then some of the, in some of the groups I worked with, um, yeah, it was very hardcore checking your code, you know, and if you make modifications, you know, you have to pass all these kinds of tests and stuff. And, and, you know, I, I think so we definitely implement a lot of that in our sort of in our process of code development. Um, and I think it's getting more and more to be the case. But there's also an element of like, of because it's research, and um, some of the stuff that we do is some of the models that we make are not going to be necessarily things that go into production, um, because it's exploratory. So there's, there's like, there's still a sense of the wild, wild west in some, in some ways, which I actually really like. Well, we've, we've reached pretty close to our 26.1 minutes. Um, and this has been fantastic. I really enjoy what you're doing here. I think it has a huge impact and your, your enthusiasm is amazing. Is there anything you'd like to leave behind for the listeners of 
you know, any sentiment or ways to contact you, whatever you wish. Yeah. Um, so I guess if you want to get in touch with me, um, you can look me up on LinkedIn. It has my email there and my Twitter handle. Um, and if you're interested in some of the work that we do at Just Bio, Evatech, Just Evatech Biologics, um, there's a recent preprint about uh, generative adversarial network that we use to create antibodies and control the properties of those antibodies that um, you can read as well. And I think that's also on my LinkedIn or somewhere on my Twitter. So feel free to look at that. And uh, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for, yeah, thanks for joining. It was great.